Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today, Mariana interviews serial entrepreneur, best-selling author, and Club of Rome member, Günther Pauli. What actually put you on this path? What happened in your life that brought you to the point where you became who you are today? You know, as, as with most of us, uh, at the very beginning, an unconditional and abundant love of your mom is, of course, what takes you through these first tough years, you know, where you're just trying to find your own way. But second, it was this uh, amazing encounter with Aurelio Pichet, the founder of the club. When I was elected president of uh, the students' organization, ISEC, for Belgium, I thought that the best that would happen was that Aurelio would speak to us and inspire us. And you know, there was a time that there was no internet and there was uh, really not even a phone that we would use. Um, we would write letters. And so I wrote a letter and amazingly three weeks later I got a response saying that he was happy to do that. And so here is a student organization that has no budget, so it's no problem, he will pay his own travel. Um, of course we didn't even talk about honoraria. Um, but uh, he came, inspired us, and um, you know, sometimes in life it's a few minutes that makes a great difference. And, and the great difference was that uh, his plane was an hour late and I got an hour of extra discussions and we connected. And, and, and one of the key things he told me is that I had to remain totally independent. I couldn't sell my soul to the McKinsey's or the Unilever's or the Procter & Gamble's in the world. And, and it kind of made an impact on me because why would he tell me that, you know? So I decided that I would go that independent path and he had warned me it's going to be tough on many occasions but there will always be friends and, and family and there will always be mentors around to, to, to reach out to. And, and the reality is that uh, from the original members of the Club of Rome just about uh, 30 of them became mentors and friends and supporters and, and, and you know this amazing thing just like with the love of your mother this unconditional true trust in that you will be able to do better than we have done. And I didn't know why I deserted. I had hardly graduated from university. But that unconditional trust that it is possible to have a new generation that will do better. And, and, and on one hand, sensing that I was ready to accept the responsibility, but on the other hand, knowing that I was operating in a network, that gave me confidence and that confidence which of course by some people can be looked upon as arrogance um, but you know that confidence gave me uh, this uh, clarity in my mind that I was gonna do bold things I was gonna do different things but I was gonna preserve my independence at all costs what a beautiful story yeah to this day so what led to your writing the blue economy but that was not the first book that you wrote you wrote, uh, for instance, a biography oh, uh, for uh, Aurelio Pichet, is that true? Well, so when he passed away, I, I was able to interact with him seven years. And when he passed away, I was in shock when I learned about him on the radio. It was in Switzerland skiing and the radio mentioned that he had passed away. I jumped on a train and went to Rome. I don't know why, but I just had to come to Rome. And um, 
when the family said, well, the funeral is only for the family, we just got together with about uh, 15 friends who had all come from around to be there. And there I had this clarity that I don't know the person who was so generous with me. I don't know. So I wanted to rediscover, trace the path. And so I took, thanks to the businesses I had, I could take the time off and just go to China and see what he was doing in China, go to Argentina, what he was doing in Argentina. And as a result, I got a clearer picture of a man who had been struggling all his life to be independent, to make the changes. And I understood why he had uh, uh, basically gently enforced that I would be an independent mind. You know, in Germany you have this beautiful difference between müssen und sollen. You know, he didn't tell me I must be independent, but he said you should be. And, and, and that really remained with me. And so, but it also created a tremendous uh, rift between me and the Club of Rome because, I mean, now I laugh at it and I remember that some of them said when the book came out, published by Pergman Press, not just any publisher, by Pergman Press, they looked at the backside and saw a picture of me and said, how could we have this kid <laughs> kidnap Aurelio for his own purposes? And of course, I was immediately shut out from the Club of Rome, and I should have no relation with them anymore. Jealousy again. <laughs> well, whatever it is, but it was, it was kind of for me an awakening that um, the umbilical cord had been cut. And that was then not true, because immediately about 10 members of the club said, you know, hey, we will support you, you know, Aurelio has really entrusted us with this responsibility. And so to me, the the grand opportunity to retrace someone else's life who has had this enormous impact on me and shaped my way of thinking and acting um, has given me a license to do things. And I believe that somewhere you wake up in life that you have a license. And one of these licenses was indeed to write. And, and I had understood from Aurelio as well, he wrote his incredible book called Cent Pages sur l'Avenir, The Hundred Pages About the Future. And, and I, I devoured that book and I, and I imagined one of these days I'm going to bring not a negative, not a dramatic, and Aurelio did believe that the next generation was able to, but now I had to fill it in. I had to fill in the message that he could not fill in when he wrote in 5,000 uh, days it will be uh, you know, uh, the change of the millennium. And so the blue economy is really a summary of 20 years of work where it is not the work, it's the discovery of everything that is possible. And I think that laying out before yourself, not a strategy to achieve an objective, but laying before you these opportunities that are all there to be, to be, to be what? To be shared. I mean, it's not for me, it's way too much for me. I, I, I can be generous in sharing it. Gave me this uh, clarity that I needed to just share the hundred best opportunities I had seen all around. And, and benefiting from this incredible network of scientists and benefiting from this uh, rich network of entrepreneurs uh, over the years that had been built up, um, I, I, I really believe that these hundred initiatives could change the world on one proviso that we change the business models with it and 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 there I felt that I was living up to the expectations of Aurelio all the other books I've written are 
I think they're very good books, but The Blue Economy was the book. And so that's why I insisted that the book should be a report to the Club of Rome, which it became in 2009. So can you give us like three top theses of, of, of The Blue Economy that uh, we should keep in mind? What are the key, the gist of it? The first of all is that we must change the business model and I, in the book I explain why the present business model cannot change. We have to just imagine, create, design another one. But the first one is that we have to be able to respond to the needs of everyone. Everyone means us human species and every other sentient being that is on this earth, including those bacteria, including those algae, including those mushrooms, animals and plants. Second, we must work with what we have. I mean, if we have any sense of what sustainability is, then we cannot imagine what will come from everywhere around the world to us or even out of space. We can only work with what we have in your local territory. Now, what the territory is, that can be defined according to different measures. But you work with what you have, you respond to the needs, and you do that by focusing on generating value. That is the natural capital value, that is the human value, that's the cultural value, that's honoring the traditions, and of course that is also economic value. But value, creating value, is really an, 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 an expression of the creativity of the human mind and the human capacity. And so when you create value, you basically immediately differentiate yourself from the economic model where you're supposed to compete on price, on quality, the cheaper is the better. Where you go for standardization, not diversity. Where you're looking for economies of scale and dominance on the market. And, and that was for me the clarity I got that the new business model was going to be respond to people's needs with what you have generating value. And the result of it was that I clearly saw how many millions of jobs could be generated? Because what I carried with me from the mentorship with Aurelio and also Bruno Kreisky, who I was able to work with for many years, is that the biggest cancer in society is young people who don't have a job. Young people who are told by their peers that we don't need you. Just keep on studying for another 10 years and you know. But, but young people are the creative minds. We need to have them join that platform and share these opportunities and so I saw that by generating value there was really an opportunity to eliminate this, this deep uh, trouble in society when young people are considered useless to society. Perfect and um, one of your recent, more recent books is, um, is a Li-Fi book because that leads toward how do you do that, how do you create value for society? How do you create those millions of jobs? Can you tell us about you know, the technologies that you're currently dealing with and the projects that you're working on, including uh, Argentina? Maybe we should start with Li-Fi. So what is, what is important, as, as you rightly touch upon, Mariana, and, and, and this is so key and I'm thankful for you to immediately guide to it, you need to be practical. I mean, you can be philosophical, but in the end of the day, Bold transformation requires bold projects. And the boldness, of course, is, is not one technology, it's the mergers of technologies. That I already understood with the 1982 report of the Club of Rome, where we were told that the merger of uh, telecommunications and computing technologies would transform the world. And of course, it did. 
even in 82 there was no internet yet but we knew the merger of the two would transform and so having this antenna in my mind for all these years I realized that the merger of light with data transmission with agriculture the merger of these three give us an opportunity to really rethink the way that we are not just communicating, the way that we're going to be farming, the way we're going to share data, the way we are going to imagine democracy in the future. Big data. And, and there, um, you know, I have this, this incredible privilege that I can meet the people who make this happen. And, and that's very inspiring because when I meet with Suat Topsu, who invented the Li-Fi, I can immediately see the risk of him falling into the trap of the traditional business model. Maybe we should say what Li-Fi is, because you and I know, but uh, our audience doesn't. So Li-Fi is basically light that is used to transmit data, is used to transmit energy. You know, everyone knows that a plant needs gas chlorophyll, and the chlorophyll transforms light into an energy. But very few people know that they are chlorophyll A and B, and that uh, thanks to the difference in frequency of light, uh, every plant has a GPS and every plant has a calendar. And, and you know, once you know every plant has that, you, you, you have to have respect because our solution of satellites is a bit, a bit over-designed over and a bit too expensive and too energy intensive. But plants have been functioning like that. Now, if you know the frequencies that the plant would like to have, then you can rethink farming without the genetics and the chemistry. But at the same time, every photon gives you the chance to transmit data. And so the flickering of light is basically the flickering of, of, of data. And so you can transmit huge volumes of data at a very short period of time, basically using existing infrastructures. So this is, this is blue economy. You use what you have, a light infrastructure, which is the most and the best installed infrastructure in modernity. <laughs> Ubiquitously available. And, and so, so we use what we have instead of just doing transmission and light, you do light and data and farming and so at once you can rethink urban farming. Wow, I can rethink urban farming with what? With a light bulb. But I thought we had already a light bulb. Yes, but not of the frequency. And, and this is where, where of course we see this tremendous opportunity for merging technologies because people in the internet didn't think they were in the farming business. They may think they have smart satellites to monitor. No, 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 no. This is plant per plant. And every plant has that capacity. And that once we change our relationship with the plant, because you must have respect for a plant when you see that it has a GPS and it has a calendar that is much more effective than the gas guzzling uh, phones that we're holding in our hands. And that to me is, is a platform for transformation because we can save 80% of the energy at the same time that we can have a hundred times or even a thousand times faster data transmission and a five-fold or a ten-fold increase in efficiency in farming. And, and when you combine that, you're saying, but how? How are we going to do that? And that is why I wrote a book on Li-Fi, because it is a glimpse, it's the first... Uh, clarity first it's, it's this is little light at the end of the tunnel that we're seeing these enormous opportunities and so we know that it's rushing forward and we know that we actually have no clue what is happening
And that is why for me it's so important that out of the hundreds of technologies that were in the blue economy, I'm taking basically one after the other to ensure that we understand what ramifications each one of them has. So a book of 300 pages with 100 cases is now translated into 100 cases with not 300 pages per case, but you know, 100, 150 pages to demonstrate that it is within our reach to transform society. Brilliant. And so just for those of us who are interested in buying the book, it is available on the internet and the title is Li-Fi, Internet at the Speed of Light and the Advent of the Internet for People. At the same time, you're also helping uh, whole governments uh, move toward uh, sustainable economies. Can you share with us, uh, with our audience, a little bit of your activity in Argentina and uh, the Plan A book, uh, Plan A, the transformation of the Argentinian economy? Well, yes, we call it Plan A because I don't think there's Plan B. I mean, I, I, I don't like the idea of having Plan A, B, because then someone else will come up and say, I have C. And then, of course, you will debate A, B and C and you don't do anything. Plan A was uh, an invitation from the Argentinian government um, to, to have a fresh look at their economy and say, what do we have we didn't see before? Um, and, and how can we respond to people's needs? And, and what are the jobs that would be generated? And so, with a team of uh, nearly 150 people, we jointly looked at this incredible country and identified one after the other. After consultations, we identified 10 where we said, it's so obvious. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to debate this anymore. Um, and then you have to give these bold figures over 20, 30 years. What happens if we do this? And of course, any scientist will say, but this is fantasy. Well, I'm sorry, the potential is there. And, and what is the alternative? So, for example, Argentina is stuck with a shortage of gas. So you have multinational corporations offering shale gas and, of course, the chemistry with it and the destruction of Patagonia with it. And so the president asked him, what's the alternative? And the alternative I proposed is uh, making gas from algae, which you will farm in the sea, because then you can regenerate your overfished sea. And, and, and that was accepted and we're putting up the first platforms to demonstrate that this works. But then of course when we're talking about Patagonia, which everyone just loves the primary temperate rainforest of Patagonia, we have pioneers like uh, uh, Chris McDivitt and Doug Tompkins who spend their fortunes to buy the land to preserve it forever. And then the question is what is now my revenue model? We have this and how we're going to earn money for the people who should not cut down the trees and should not endorse the shale gas, but we cannot neglect the fact that they need to have an income as well. And the income has to be a value that today is not depreciated. So we identified that Patagonia is the greatest, uh, probably one of the two top sources in the world for wild yeast. Now, if I, I'm, I'm a marketing person in heart and soul with the businesses I had before, so I know that the, the microbreweries and the craft breweries are in a plane, but I also know that most of them are using genetically modified yeast. And they're having all the great crafts, but the yeast they're using is not a natural one. And so I wondered what would the market react to when they had a thousand wild yeast. Well, the reaction is wild, you know, because people didn't know. Now, when you have a wild yeast, you have to first domesticate 
before. And you know, we kind of have used to domesticate uh, mammals, but we haven't yet domesticated yeasts. Well, we did that for hundreds of years, but then we thought it was much easier to genetically modify them. And so here we have an opportunity to, to ride the wave of the craft breweries and the microbreweries of the world, to offer them wild yeasts, domesticated in the meantime, in that domestication. But a 3% royalty of that goes back to those who found the yeasts in the forests. And so the National Park Service, <coughs> the National Park Service of Argentina fully embraced it. Um, we think the revenue will easily go to 30, 40 million dollars, which is doubling the budget they have today. But it is based on what? What they have. They have the yeasts. And so we are planning to, to undertake the yeast safaris. Uh, we're going to collect them. We're going to inspire young people to come to the forest, not to just take pictures of the trees and the birds, but to harvest wild yeast and to actually process the domestication so that uh, we can, well, take a great market share. And, and to me, it is, it is very critical. We have something that can be put into action very soon. So between the harvesting of the yeast, domestication and the first beer is three to six months. Now, that's the kind of timeline that impatient people who are out of a job would like to see. And that is the kind of a timeline where the capital requirements are very low. And, and I think this is the logic that we apply. I'm not going through all eight. You can download my book for free um, on, on, on our website of Argentina. But I think it is very critical to know that there's so many opportunities and if we summarize them for a nation like Argentina, we could transform the country and the country's economy. We could build on what they have, generate jobs, and we could uh, decelerate this typical obsession with growth to get out of the pain because we're basically just using what is there while regenerating the ecosystems on which we all depend. Right. So. Our audience, as you know, um, are investors and business people and young entrepreneurs, and you are one of the co. How do I say? It's not a, found, a founding. The, you launched together with us the investment turnaround last year, and we. It's been exactly to the day, um, a whole year. What? What advice would you recommend? Would you give to investors? How can they join you? How can they? identify investment opportunities that you're working on and uh, with what criteria can they invest? What should they look for uh, in order to make those investments integrally sustainable? So I do not want to be the one defining what is sustainable, what is not sustainable, what you should invest in. I believe that uh, when we present projects, these projects must speak to the mind for at least two, three generations. That means when you see and hear and get the basic numbers, you must say, wow, this is a business that's going to be on there forever. You know, like I think that uh, wild yeast domesticated for craft brewers. Yeah, if I have uh, 500 or 1,000 microbrewers around the world who will buy the yeast, then this is going to be business forever. And, and this is going to support the forest forever. Although instead of paying a genetics company in Denmark or in the UK or in the United States, I'm actually retributing money to the pioneers of the wild yeasts in Patagonia. I, I mean, I think people 
must feel this appeal. And if someone else says, gosh, you know, I really want to stop shale gas, well, let's go together. And it's $25,000 for a platform to start producing a thousand tons of seaweeds. And so what we think is important that people, first of all, listen to their heart and feel that, gosh, there is a mission. I can join a mission. I can leave legacy. It's number one. If you don't feel that, don't get involved with us. Second, though, is that you see that it's a very clear incremental unit that you can start working with. A platform for seaweeds is $25,000. You want to do 10 platforms, you want to do 100 platforms, but we will immediately have the gas produced and so on. And so you know there is a, a multiple that one can work with. Um, and, and, and I think that's very important. You see that it's scalable. You can go from one to a thousand to a million. And when people see that, they realize that it is a legacy. But the unit is a financial unit that everyone can work with according to their facility. I mean, we're looking, for example, at uh, regenerating this uh, rainforest in Madagascar in order to grow the forest again under which under the canopy of which we can generate caffeine-free coffee. And, and, and all of a sudden, we know that's 250 million that you need in order to get that going. Now, 250 million is basically 2,500 per hectare. And, and we already have 1,700 hectares guaranteed and already started producing. So you can see that the ball is rolling and you can move, but it is an incremental, scalable and it goes at the speed of which the investor wants to go. The third one, which is very important, is that you refrain from wanting to have short-term exits. We can't work with short-term exits. Patient capital. Yeah. It's patient, but patient over 25 years. But the upside over the 25 years is for your next generation or for your pension plan, whatever you want to call it. But it is an enormous upside that you see because if you go from, from, from 1,700 hectares to 100,000, you go from a production of a couple hundred tons to a couple hundreds of thousands of tons. And the framework around it is supported by a group that is already doing the future by future purchases and future options on these caffeine-free coffees. You know, you can see that the model is self-generating into its funding. And, and I think it's very important that we have clarity that um, there is no short-term exit. You're part of a team of missionaries that uh, are committed to create this legacy. And so the no-option exit also usually implies that one gets very involved in the sale of the end products. That doesn't mean that you become the salesperson of caffeine-free coffee or, or the alternative to shale gas, but we are going to use our networks to ensure that the most important act in any new business is who's my customer, who's my first customer, who is buying from us. And that has to become a collegial effort. That's why I say often my first customers are often my first investors. My first investors are my customers or they organize the customers. And that chain reaction, and we have this very concretely on the coffee, I mean Lavazza is uh, supporting in order to get the right coffee flavoring together. And of course Lavazza will be the first one also using the natural caffeine-free coffee from a regenerated forest, not from a protected forest, but from a region. Now, 
this is where we need partnerships, people. And if you have a family office and if you have uh, a desire to invest, most of the time you know other people who are exactly in that world. And because you're in that sphere, you become a co-creator. You're not a co-investor. You become a co-creator of the business. And that means that indeed you feel hopefully the passion, like I feel it, that, you know, gosh, we can change the world now and get a good return. Yes, of course. That goes hand in hand. So what keeps you so passionate? How would you get the energy to be such a force for good in the world? What do you do on a regular basis to stay healthy? I know you have a beautiful family, six extraordinary children, beautiful wife. What do you do? How do you keep healthy? Well, I think the, the most important to, to keep health in your mind is the giving. You know, if, if you're just absorbing, 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 it doesn't work very well for a long time. Uh, there, there needs to be the giving. And I had, uh, you know, 25 years ago, the, 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 like everyone goes through a crisis in life and we all need to recenter. That's how we grow. <laughs> um, you know, it became clear that one of the best ways for me to grow is to, ins to, to, to give to young children inspiration. And what keeps me going is that not so much when I sit around investors who say, yes, I'll commit the millions to, to this project. And that, that makes me happy or satisfied, but it doesn't give me the big kick. The big kick is to be in China with thousands of children who after one hour of continuous dialogues with them um, uh, are all jumping up to wanting to work with me and, 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 and my teams and, and, and want to be with Katerina, my wife, in order to... With to whom you wrote 185 books for the Chinese right. children, <laughs> which we need to add because people don't know. And so, so the amazing thing is that I, I see how energized those kids are. And since we're going to China twice every year, we see how it is just building and building and building. And that keeps me going. I mean, uh, I was uh, just spending time in Madagascar and, and, and Mauritius and, and, and now I'm going to Reunion Island and I was in Morocco and each time this immense burst of energy and inspiration from young people, I mean, that gets me going. And, and we know that it's, it's so key that we keep on connected to the next generations. Um, we, 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 I want to pay all that respect to those who made me who I am today and, and usually in any presentation of mine I show 30, 40 pictures of the people who have inspired me. But that means also I have the responsibility to inspire others. And I have the responsibility when students write me that I always respond. Always respond. There's never a no. There may be a time issue and, you know, it may take a year or so, but I will always respond. And, and I think this is the key. Reconnecting to the source of life on Earth means that not only we do exercise and we eat healthy and, and all of that, the, the, the most important for me is to be open to this energetic connection to the next generations. And I think as long as I'm able to maintain that, that dialogue, that's why I wrote this fable about masters. That's why I wrote this fable about masters and grandmasters, because what very, what many people forget is if if you come to a point in life where people look at you as a master. I don't like the word guru, um, but if you just another word for teacher. Yes, yeah, you know, you you you're the teacher, you're the master. 
And, and, and what, is, what is nice about uh, uh, that is that when you realize you perhaps are a master, then you can become humble and have humility to learn from your students. And that's when you wake up in life. So inspiring this next generation is actually regenerating your own mind. And, and this opportunity perhaps gives you the chance to become a grandmaster. But when you're a grandmaster, you're learning from your masters. And, and when you can learn from your masters, then I believe we reach a stage in life where we don't have to worry about death. Because you will always live in the minds of everyone. Because you have learned from everyone else. And I think that clarity that I have now is the what, what keeps me going. I have the clarity that if I give, I learn. And I learn, and thanks to having 20, 30 masters as my, my teachers, you know, I can really evolve and, and be a much better teacher to others. Wow, what a beautiful way to end a glorious interview. Thank you so much for your time. Thank and you, Mariana. for doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank Gunther. you. Gunther tweets at MyBlueEconomy and blogs at GuntherPauli.com. You can find links to his books in the description of today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.